world as well, but mostly it was a huge influence in America, and that is slavery, and that's specifically how Christianity and slavery have mixed together, and, and today what I really want to spend a lot of time on is looking at the justifications that folks primarily in the South, but will we'll, um, try to show that this wasn't just a Southern American thing, um, but that folks in the South primarily used to justify slavery and show why those arguments are just, they're, they're rancid, they're, they're very bad. Because um, I don't think that anyone who reads the Bible correctly can ever believe that upholding slavery is, is right. Um, and if they do, then I think that they're misreading what the texts actually say. So we'll talk about that. Um, and the first, to start though, we need to say that like, this shouldn't even be an issue. So we have been through Christianity being sort of in control and in authority loosely since Constantine was emperor somewhere in the early 300s until basically the 1600s when England was forming, finally forming colonies in the new world. And in that time, so you've got 1,300 years worth of church history there where slavery was just not a thing. Like we, we had people who were impoverished and there was a feudal system and it doesn't mean that people were always treated with like egalitarian beauty or anything like that, but it does mean that this idea of slavery had completely disappeared. <clears throat> and this was kind of a Christian thing from the very get. Um, it's uh, I have a lot of frustration for people who um, want to blast Christianity for upholding slavery, um, but they have no idea of the reason why they oppose slavery, which is basically because they're standing on Christian principles and they just want to deny the legs that are holding them up. But nevertheless, um, you can go back and you can read, um, we talked about um, Basil of Caesarea back in the 400s. He, he wrote a book that's literally titled On Social Justice, where he lays out the fact that this is just not something that Christians do. This was something that John Chrysostom preached on um, early, early in Christianity. They, they put an end to slavery for very, very good reasons. Um, given that, uh, given that it's, it's somewhat strange that the tide turned, and there is a reason why the tide turned, and it's, it's very clear what the reason was that the tide turned. We've heard about it several times. It was found most poignantly in, in George Whitfield, who wanted to start this, this agency to take in orphans. And why did he need slaves for it? Because it just wasn't financially viable to do it any other way. And so the whole reason for slavery was economics. We're going to find that that has always been a reason for slavery, but not the reason for biblical slavery, the way in which the Americans did it. And, and we say Americans, but this is, we're holdovers from the British. It, we started as British and became Americans in the, in the middle. Um, so the main purpose, and we, we need to be clear about this, the main purpose for having slavery was simply financial. It was money and economics. That's it. Um, what often happens is what happened here. They wanted something to be true, and then they went and found justifications for that. And, and that's why they ran to, to give justifications from the Bible. Um, if it wasn't for the love of money, slavery simply would not have been introduced into the Americas. It's just the way that it is. Um, Southern Baptists have a bad role to play in all of this. Um, Baptists were by far 
uh, Baptists and Methodists for reasons that we've talked about because they don't have as much of a hierarchical structure um, would end up taking up the vast majority of, not the vast majority, but the majority of believers. Certainly they were the largest denominations. And um, so early on in, in 1814, there's something called the Triennial Convention, which all of the Baptists in America kind of came in on. And this was headquartered in Philadelphia. And um, this was something that Baptists were really good about. So we talked about how the churches in New England were funded by taxpaying dollars and things like that because the church and the state were kind of welded together. Because Baptists wanted to pull away from that, they weren't getting funded from outside and they weren't funded from society in general. And so missions and cooperation um, kind of started to become hand in hand. In order for smaller churches to have an impact, um, for bigger churches to help those smaller churches, there needed to be some form of cooperation and coming together. And, and Baptists very quickly realized this with the Pietist movement and the wanting, and William Carey and others wanting to spread the word of God. Sending missionaries out overseas was expensive. Um, doing work on the frontier was difficult. And so more established churches needed to help the frontier churches, because the, the established churches back in the east couldn't go out to the frontier. They knew that the frontier churches needed to be there. They needed financial assistance. So for all of these reasons, they wanted to partner together. And so every three years, they would come together and they would partner. Now, by the time 1814 rolls around, attitudes about slavery, slavery is already becoming an issue. And so the Triennial Convention just has this sort of hands-off approach. And their, their idea is basically, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, or don't ask, don't tell. Okay, so when it comes to slavery, they're basically saying we're not going to take a policy on it because the most of the northern churches, primarily again for financial reasons, don't have slaves and are abolitionists. Okay, so a lot of the reason why slavery was ended in the north was probably due to economic reasons as well. Slavery in the south was important because they were an agricultural. Uh, center, and agriculture just takes a junk ton of labor and manual labor and hard labor. In the north, there was just less of that. They were more industrialized, which is one of the reasons why they won the war. Um, higher population densities, uh, more industrialization, so there are more abolitionists in the north, and the northern churches were kind of on board with that. They didn't like slavery. The two didn't get along very well, but they agreed just to kind of like be quiet about it. Eventually, though, things were going to reach sort of a, a problem. Um, the Training Hall Convention did good things. They, they started sending out people in the, the um, nature of Luther Rice and, and Adoniram, Adoniram Judson, and others were sent off to India. Um, they spread the word. So this Triennial Convention was doing the work that they needed to do, um, but eventually the North and the South were going to hit loggerheads on this. This was a type of... of um, detente that was never going to exist for very long. Um, eventually, the Georgia State Convention proposed a man named James E. Reeve to be a missionary through the Foreign Missions Board. Um, and they proposed him specifically because he was a slaveholder. And what the Foreign Mission Board did was basically say, we're, we're not going to do anything. Because if they accepted his his stance as a, as a missionary, that seems to be them saying thumbs up to slavery. If they deny him, that's a thumbs down to slavery. And so they thought that they could kind of avoid the problem in the best way that people in power avoid problems, and that is by saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And so they just didn't do anything with him. Well, eventually, this is just the first domino that's going to fall. And 
them punting just created more problems. And basically, Baptists in the South are going to say bye-bye. By 1845, Southern Baptists, as a, as a general rule, have just gone their way. Um, now, that's not every Baptist. There are so, still some smaller missionary independent Baptist churches that don't want to play games with, with others, don't want to help with others, um, which we still have today. But, but as far as Baptists who are, who are in the Triennial Convention, eventually Southern Baptists broke off and became Southern Baptists, okay? So this is one of the reasons, when you hear people talk about not wanting the name Southern Baptist, like people who fight for that, I just am befuddled by it. Like the name was started due to slavery, like, why would you want to keep that? I, the, first, the first hall I lived in, and the only hall I lived in when I l- went to school at Southern, was Basil Manley. It was Manley Hall. Basil Manley was one of the first guys who was like, no, we're, we're not going to work with abolitionists. We're going we're gonna to separate, and we're going to be slaveholders. Almost all, most of the, the older buildings that are on Southern's campus still named for slaveholders. Um, and so the distancing that we have from slavery is not great. But nevertheless, um, this was an, an, an issue and one of the reasons why Southern Baptists were started in, in the first place. And Southern Baptists have done a really good job um, since then um, of trying to not avoid their past. And this is something that I think is a strong point in Southern Baptist life. Um, we're not whitewashing and we're not trying to, to just do what the Triennial Convention did and say, I don't know what you're talking about. They have addressed these things head-on, probably not as head-on as maybe I would like, but they, they have at least said, we acknowledge our past, we acknowledge where we've been, um, we repent of that. So you can go to the 1995, um, there's resolutions in every convention that we have, and the 1995 resolution on racism and slavery was really important because it happened in the 150th anniversary of the making of the Southern Baptist Convention, and it's basically just a repudiation of slavery and saying, saying we, were, we were wrong. This is, there's no, no place in our lives for this. So they've done a good job of acknowledging that, of, of saying the evil that it was and running from it. Um, again, maybe not everywhere we want them to be, but, um, but a good job in the most part. Um, it should be said that now um, we are one of the most diverse denominations in the world, um, not just for... Um, white people and black people in, inside a denomination, but including Hispanic churches and Asian churches. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is one of the most racially diverse. The, the problem is that because of the history of Southern Baptists, they are also some of the most racially diverse and separated. So we don't have a bunch of Baptist churches that are a mix of Hispanic and white and black churches. We do in, in more urban areas, but in those urban areas are also the black Southern Baptist Church and the white Southern Baptist Church, and they can partner together, but they don't worship together, um, and so there's still issues to be worked out there. But moving on, um, the main justifications biblically given, does anybody want to guess at what some of the main texts that were used were? Does anyone know the most odious one? Want to take a stab at it? We like to eat it at Easter. Like eggs? What? Ham. So does anybody know the curse of ham? If you don't, that's brilliant. I'm very, very happy to hear that you don't know the curse of ham. It's the only time I'm going to biblically say I'm glad you don't know of like this biblical text. 
And the reason why is because the only time it typically comes up is that it was used back in the day to basically support slavery. Um, And the curse of Ham comes in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read from a good portion of scripture today. So while I would like to sit, I'm going to stand. Not out of reverence to the word, I just, I'm too short to read it otherwise. Um, In chapter 9 of the book of Genesis in verse 20 and down, um, we read this is directly after the flood. Noah and his sons have made it through with their wives. Um, in verse 20, we read, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. Um, what we end up reading is that Ham is going to be associated with, so remember, if you're, if you're an author here at this time, the, the, the world is looked at sort of like you've got the entire world's map, but you only have a very slim circle to think of the world as. Okay. After that, that small circle, which is kind of centered on Israel, and then it fades to black everywhere else. So once you get below the, the land of Egypt, right, and to the west of Egypt, it starts to fade into black. There's not much there. Once you get above uh, the, the land of Syria and into Turkey, it starts to fade to black. They don't think much of the lands up there. And same thing going to the east. So the, the peoples of... Um, of Noah's sons are described in terms of their geographical areas as Ham uh, being in the land of Canaan. After all, it's Canaan who is cursed. And Ham also has descendants who go down into Egypt, okay? And that's primarily it. Um, The others settle in different places. Now, the important part about that is that one of the justifications given for slavery is that all Africans are therefore descendants of Ham, and because Ham was cursed to be a servant forever, the ability of Americans and Europeans um, to enslave them is solely because the curse of Ham still exists upon them, okay? Now, if you're hearing that, you're thinking that that sounds really specious and kind of silly, You're right, it is. It's the worst kind of argument um, because it just does absolutely nothing. So let me me tell you that this is a real curse and I think it does have actual impact, but but here's where we go. So listen to the the sons of Ham um, as we we come down into chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Sons of Canaan, blah, blah, blah. So we come down to the sons of Canaan. In verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. If those names sound somewhat familiar, it's going to be because those names are repeated repetitively when what is about to happen. 
when Israel, fall of Jericho, when Israel, in the book of Joshua, in Deuteronomy, when they're saying, hey, we're going into a land with people who are more powerful and strong than you, and those are the nations that are mentioned, right? Even Ham is mentioned very infrequently in the Bible, but do you know what Ham is always mentioned in reference to? It is always mentioned in reference to Egypt, not to other parts of the world, only to Egypt. So in Psalm 78, 51, in 105, and in 106, you have this reference to the curses of God coming down upon Egypt, which were nothing less than what we're reading of in Exodus, where God sends plagues upon Egypt. That is, plagues upon the people of Ham. Okay, that's what's going on. Now, what you end up getting then is that Canaan, first of all, is the one who is cursed, not Ham. And there might be reasons for that, but it is important to note that Ham is not actually cursed here. Canaan is cursed. For Canaan to become the servants of Sheth, or, or um, Seth, the line that goes through Seth, for, for them to become the servants of that line is nothing less than what happens in the book of Joshua right? Joshua and the people of Israel go into the land. They destroy those whom they destroy, but there are others who they don't destroy. And in every single case, what do we read of in the book of Joshua? They became their servants. This is the curse of Ham, or the curse of Canaan, we would like to say, being played out in real time. There's so much wrong with saying that it's okay for uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th century Europeans and their ancestors in America to enslave people from West Africa by this. Like, it doesn't make sense geographically. It doesn't make sense ethnically. It doesn't make sense of the text. It certainly means that you're not reading what's actually happening in the text. If you can't tell, I really, really hate it. So this was one of the things that that resolution that Southern Baptists did they, they completely and utterly deny. They said, you cannot understand the curse of Ham that way. That is not an appropriate way to handle Scripture. And again, you have to understand, that was probably the primary text that was used to justify slavery. There are others, though. We need to talk about slavery in general in the Old Testament. To do this, we're going to turn to Leviticus, and I'm going to explain a couple of things. So if you've got your, your Bibles, turn to Leviticus 25. And a passage that was used quite often to refer uh, to the ability for people to enslave others. 25 verses 39 to 46. Okay. Leviticus 25, 39. Now, I do want to bring attention. I don't know if you have titles over sections in your scripture. My ESV, up above 35, labels this section as kindness for poor brothers, which is an important thing to remember. In verse 39, it says this, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. Now, I need to put a little, a little asterisk there. If you go to the book of Exodus, it says that you cannot, that this Leviticus says you cannot make him serve as a slave. The book of Exodus calls the same setup it talks about the same setup as though those people were slaves, okay? It's using slave in the same sense, or or it's using the same word in two different senses. It's quite clear he's going to outline what he means by slavery here. So people sometimes point out the contradiction between Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25. They're using the same word in two distinct ways. It's quite clear that that's what's going on. Anyways, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. 
He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee, which is the seventh year. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, or slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male, and we'll stop there. So, first of all, Israelites themselves could never actually be possessed as slaves. They voluntarily gave themselves over to you because their poverty became such that this was the only way allowed for them to live. They came to you, and they would work for you for seven years. And the seventh year, they were free. If you thought you didn't get recouped the money, so if they were in debt, right, they, they bought something and they couldn't pay it back, you said, I will pay it back, and you don't think that you recouped your money from it, the Lord says... Later on, he's going to say, you, you more than recouped your money. But he's also here going to say, tough. Seven years, they're gone. You don't get to hang on to them. This isn't a return on interest. You're taking them on for seven years, and they're gone. This isn't slavery. This is them saying, I'm going to work for you for seven years, basically. It's, it's a contract as much as anything. And notice that economics plays a role here, but it's a completely reversed economics from the way it was handled in America. Those who were in power needed those who were impoverished in order to make their finances better. Here, it is the one who is in power who is taking the risk with his own finances to help the one who is impoverished. It is completely and utterly turned around. That's for Israelites, okay? Now, they could own slaves otherwise, verse 44. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy, and we'll talk about that word, male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers and the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Okay. Now, let's talk about that picture of slavery that has been presented here. There's going to be other rules that it's going to make very, very clear that while it talks about them being possessions, and again, what we have is translation issues here um, and, and understanding issues from an ancient culture, they had rules and regulations about how they were to be treated, and they were never to be mistreated. And if they were mistreated, they were treated fairly under the law as human beings, not as mere possessions. Okay? So if you happen to knock out the tooth of a slave, that slave is free. Like there's, there's, no, there's no way to, to mistreat them and to think that that's okay. Secondly, the way in which people got these slaves, it uses the word buy here. That word is almost always to be understood in the context of the way people gained slaves in those days. Okay, so... The vast majority of the slaves in Israel are going to come from the Canaanite conquest. That land was promised by God to the nation of Israel, and they were to take it, and they were to make it subservient to them. They were supposed to kill everybody, but God, because of the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites, allowed them to make slaves of those people. Now, when you hear people argue and fuss about the fact that the Old Testament allows slavery and how horrible and evil it is, there's a couple of things that we need to say in response to that. First of all, it was a mercy of God because otherwise they would have just all been destroyed. So when you went and you took a city, and that city fought against you, you were to put all the men to the sword, but you were to keep the women and the children alive. And the reason why you were to do that, if that city decided that they were going to go to war with you, was because you were being merciful to the women and children. 
okay? You weren't going to end their lives, but you were going to allow them to live. It was a sign of mercy and of care, especially because you were to take them into their, your house and you were to treat them really, really well. You're going to treat them with fairness and equity in all things. And so for the Canaanites who were there, who were spared, who then got sold into slavery, the end result is you either got slavery or you got death. At which point in time, modern people would say, that seems like it's a stupid way to go. Why give them those two options? Why not just allow them to live freely among the people of Israel? Well, there's a really good reason why. Because the nation of Israel is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. Religion and the, the way in which their country ran were bound together to have people who were living among you, basically living as citizens among you, who had rights and privileges among you, who likewise did not worship Yahweh as the Lord, was a recipe for abject disaster and the destruction of the nation, which is exactly what comes. There is another option. You can, like, become an Israelite. They have that option. We, we see that in the, the testimonies of, of People who, who said, oh, no, I, you know, I've heard, Rahab says, I, I, we've heard. We've heard what's going on here. And, and I'm, I'm willing to give up all of it to serve the Lord. Right? Ruth does the same thing. And they are incorporated directly into Israelite life. So they have that option. If they refuse to do that and they want to serve their gods, God says, I will spare you, but you will only be slaves. So again, it's an act of mercy. It's an act of kindness. More than that, what we need to see is that once we get up to um, the New Testament, a sort of distinction goes away because now what we don't have is a nation built on a very clear outline of ethnicity, but we have a nation built on faith where we are actively trying to win brothers and sisters to the Lord, which would be brothers and sisters that cannot be placed into slavery. The other interesting bit is that that was another chief reason for slavery. So people in the South would make the argument all the time, can't you see the good that we're doing for these Africans? And one of the chief things was not simply bringing them over and giving them culture and giving them, by the way, they weren't actually doing that. They weren't being educated. If they were being educated, it was likely just by happenstance because the women happened to work in the house when readings were happening. Very few of them were ever given the chance to learn how to read or learn how to write. And those who were, who had masters who were lenient in that way, were very few and far in between and showed themselves to be incredibly competent. But um, one of the things that, that Southern owners would do and Southern people who responded this way was talk about the great things that are happening for Africans. So this is um, an Anglican bishop, Stephen Elliott in Georgia, writing about this. When he's talking to abolitionists and, and the work that abolitionists are doing, he says this, they ought to consider whether by their interference with this institution, they may not be checking and impeding a work which is manifestly providential. For nearly a hundred years, the English and American churches have been striving to civilize and Christianize Western Africa, and with what result? Around Sierra Leone and in the neighborhood of Cape Palmas, a few natives have been made Christians, and some nations have been partially civilized. But what a small number in comparison to the thousands, nay, I say millions, who have learned the way to heaven and who have been made to know their Savior through the means of African slavery. At this very moment, there are from three to four million Africans educating for earth and for heaven in the so vilified southern states, learning the very best lessons for a semi-barbarous people, 
lessons of self-control, of obedience, of perseverance, of adaptation, of means to ends. Learning above all where their weakness lies and how they may acquire strength for the battle of life. These considerations satisfy me with their condition and assure me that it is the best relation they can for the present be made to occupy. That is some patronizing junk right there, right? It's one thing to say, we're going to bring them over and we are going to Christianize them. And then when they're Christians, we're setting them free, right? And we're going to educate them. We're going to treat them like brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not doing that. Like, this is just the greatest window dressing. And it's blasphemous. So terribly blasphemous. Um, some logic that. So, when you think about slavery in the Old Testament, realize, one, um, it was extremely limited, especially for Israelite slaves. And there weren't really Israelite slaves. These were people who were being helped out economically. Slavery from brother to brother was only there, as we want to call it slavery, as a social safety net. Right? This was the welfare of the time in order to help the poor. Secondly, there was absolutely and completely no kidnapping and man-stealing. This was outlined not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, so that when it talks about buying a slave, that is someone who has willingly handed themselves over to you by their own volition to be taken into your household. Okay, So that you can't steal people, which is exactly what was happening in in the African slave trade. And you can say, well, the Africans were doing that as well, okay? But the English and the Americans knew that they were doing it. They knew that other Africans were stealing other Africans and selling them to you. That's man-stealing, right? You can't say, I've got a box of iPhones, iPhone 14s, and I'm going to sell them and, and have somebody else buy them. Now, you can laugh at them because they're buying an iPhone, and that's kind of a ripoff anyway. But, but if you buy it and you know it was stolen, do you know what you've done? You've broken the law. Like, we know that this is wrong. We know that it's evil and bad. And I'm not just talking about iPhones. I mean the, the practice of, of stealing things and then buying stolen property. We know that that is wrong. That's exactly what they were doing. There is no kidnapping, no man stealing allowed in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And third, <clears throat> it was typically used to avoid starvation, economic ruin, and death. In other words, it was done because God wanted kindness to be paid to people. It was done out of mercy. Now, when you come up to the New Testament, again, arguments that were made. One, Jesus never forbid it. Okay. This argument is used, by, by the way, most often socially now for what? Does anybody have a guess? homosexuality, right? Like, good. That, that argument gets a lot of play because Jesus, Jesus didn't forbid a lot of stuff, right? Like, there's, there's how much, did you want him to just go through a big list of things that you were, you were not to do? This is not what Jesus came for. And so, to simply say Jesus doesn't forbid it is just a ridiculous thing. And again, it's the same argument that homosexual people um, who are Christian, who want to uphold the word, at least in part, would look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus didn't forbid it, so it must be okay. Clearly not. Um, that's, that's a really bad way of uh, reading scripture. Um, a second passage, one of the most famous passages that were used, if slaves got preached to at all, um, they would oftentimes have white people preach to them, and they would only have a handful of passages that they spoke to them on. Um, they didn't actually want them to learn much of the Bible, <clears throat> because I I think, I 
think that they kind of in the back of their head knew that this would undo the work that we were doing. And so one of the passages that they limited themselves to was Ephesians chapter 6, if you would open your Bibles there, because we want to talk about uh, what this means. Now, the ESV here, although in other places, is very content to use the word slave, um, uses the word bondservant here, but it's it's slave. Um, In verse 5, chapter 6, Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to a man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That was a passage that was often used to, to preach to slaves, basically to say, listen, we know you're slaves. Here's the deal. You are to treat us as your masters. You are to treat us as you would treat Christ the Lord himself. You are to do what we ask you to do with, with hearts that, that long for and desire to do this. Okay, the real problem with that is what Paul says next. Okay, and it, it comes up in the very first line and there's a huge question that lingers here. The very next line is about masters to those who own slaves or masters who have these servants in their midst. And he writes to them, masters, do the same to them. What is the same? That's the question, what is the same? You are to do the same to them. To serve them? That doesn't, doesn't necessarily make sense. I don't think that that's it. I don't think it's you were to serve them, although that comes pretty close. I don't think that he's talking about serving them because masters don't serve. In this kind of setup, like that wouldn't, that wouldn't help people. I don't think that's what he means. What else could he mean by do the same? So, so that's one thing. Do good to them, I think. I think that's, that's right. I think both of those are, are getting closer to it. I think doing good to them is one of the, the pictures of it. I think that's right. That's, I think that's right. I think that there's a more fun, there, that good that comes from them comes from a much more fundamental thing. The most fundamental thing that slaves are to do in reference to their masters <clears throat> and the thing from which everything else flows in that text is to treat their masters, to think of them as they are Christ. I think that's precisely what the masters are to do to the slaves as well. Just as Jesus came not just to be Lord, but even in being a Lord, he came to to provide service for all, right? He came as a servant to all, to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus does this beautiful thing where he is the Lord and he is the servant of all. And therefore, both masters and slaves can look at the other and can treat them as though they treated Christ. Now, that completely, now what Paul is doing, we need to We need to be very careful about this. What Paul is doing is allowing the relationship, the social relationship, or or, excuse me, he's allowing the facade of slavery and service, which he might not know to call by any other name, he's allowing that facade to be placed and to keep it there, while at the same time undercutting the very nature of slavery itself. So that you can have somebody who is in charge and hierarchical, is above somebody else, and can tell them what they are to do and how they are to do it, and you can work for them. But at the same time, 
the social distinction between the two is almost completely and utterly eradicated. So there, there is something that is in the name of slavery without any of the implications of slavery. So Paul's not trying to eat. And, and again, one wonders what people expect Paul to say. If Paul's going to say, well, you can't have slaves, then that eradicates the one, one of the chief ways in which people were kind of basically employed then. And so he's just got to come up with a whole other name for that and then explain what he means by that name and then work that through when he can just say, well, keep the name, but here's how you're going to live amongst that relationship and it's going to utterly change the way that you form that relationship. So he keeps the facade of the name of slavery, but he's radically reinterpreting what slavery looks like. Slaves, you're not just to do what your master says because your master says it. You're not doing it to please him. Rather, you're doing it because it pleases Christ. Masters, you are to treat your servants well, to love them and to care for them. You are to treat them as they were Christ serving you, right? So think of the foot washing, right? Christ comes and he washes the feet of his disciples. That is how you are to think of the servants who serve you, okay? I think that's what Paul is saying. I think I'm on pretty good ground there, exegetically, to say that. Um, as we kind of come to an end here, the, the most important letter in all of this is obviously the letter of Philemon or Philemon. Um, I like Philemon a little bit better. <clears throat> I've asked him before, and he never gave me a good answer on how to pronounce it. So um, the, the text itself is short. It's the shortest letter of Paul. It's found in the back letters of Paul. So if you're trying to find it, go to the book of Hebrews and then work your way to the front of it, and you'll find Philemon. Um, the context of this letter is this. Onesimus, who is Philemon's slave, has run away. Um, he has come in contact with Paul, and he has rendered an incredibly good service to Paul. Um, Paul loves him and cares for him, and he quite clearly is a Christian, as is Philemon. And Paul knows both Onesimus now, and he knows Philemon. And so um, he hears, I think uh, we can naturally infer this, he hears either by Onesimus telling him or by Philemon requesting it that Onesimus has run away, and he knows that Philemon wants him back. And so Paul's letter to Philemon is about that particular situation. And so this is how that letter starts. We'll try and get through as much of it as I can. Um, beginning in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Okay. One of the things that Paul does here is subtly set Philemon up to do the very thing that he wants to do. And he does this by buttering him up, but by buttering him up in a certain way. He says, I've heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, he's going to set Onesimus up as a saint in the Lord. In other words, he's saying one of the things he's praising him for, if you want me to praise you, I'm praising you for your love. And so I want you to treat Onesimus with love. And then secondly, I pray for the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. So he's basically saying, I want you to grow so that you can understand every good thing. In other words, my prayer is that you will understand what I'm about to tell you, okay? And he goes on to say, in verse 8, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Now, so he's looking at Philemon saying, I ought to make you do this, 
but out of respect for you, I'm going to let you save face. So you, you get this real sense in Paul. Notice, by the way, commentators, when they write on Philemon, always talk about Onesimus, like, admitting that he did wrong or something. Paul never even hints that Onesimus did a thing wrong. The only person who has hinted at, at doing something wrong is Philemon. The only person who's hinted at. And it's here, strongly. He says, I could have commanded you. I could still command you. But for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also. For, this is a nice way of putting it. Remember me, Paul. I'm in prison. I'm an old man. Don't make me sad. Right? It's, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, <clears throat> whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me which is just a beautiful thing. He's like saying, when he was a slave, he, he did no good for you. Like, yeah, sure, he did work, but that was not of use to you. But now he is of real use because he's a Christian. I am sending him back to you, sending him my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord, which is a nice sleight of hand because the way Paul is setting this up you, you kind of got to go along with what Paul's saying here, right? This is, um, Paul is a Jew, and he sounds very much like, like the guilt trip that, that is like quintessential, like at least as far as, as TV has taught me, quintessential Jewish mom guilt, right? Like, like, if you really loved me, you would do this. And that seems to be kind of what Paul is doing. Um, he goes, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while. Notice, he doesn't, it's passive, right? Onesimus hasn't done anything wrong. He was parted from you. That you might have him back forever. Um, in verse 16, no longer as a slave or a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Okay? The whole... Um, the whole outline there basically is saying, again, you can call him a slave if you want. You can talk about him as though he's a slave. But that whole relationship that you have of master and slave has to be so radically redone that we are keeping the words, but we are redefining everything about it. Like, you, you are going to take him back like me. I have the ability to command you. I have the ability to look at you and say, you can do this, but you can't do that. And you were to receive him back as me. So, the New Testament talks at times about masters and about slaves. But when you look at how it talks about those things, it's quite clear that the only thing that it's keeping in place is the language. But right behind the language, all the implications of it, all of the meaning of it, all of the substance of it, all of the social conflicts and things that would go with it are being radically redone. So that what Christians would call slavery doesn't look like slavery at all. It looks quite a bit like what we might get in like Downton Abbey, right? Like where you have a benefactor, but even, even the English, right? completely ruined that because they didn't treat those servants as their equals. So Downton Abbey was a bad example. I can't think of a good example because there is no example of having a hierarchy like that that works in the way that Christianity is portraying it. There's just nothing that works that way. Basically, it is just a job. And you are paying somebody to do a job for you. 
What's that? It's okay. It looks like Chick-fil-A, um, which would be more reasonable if it was open on Sundays. So, uh, but they're treating them like brothers and sisters in the Lord and allowing them to go. So this is the idea. It looks more like how we would economically talk about how people are employees and employers today. Paul didn't have that language. He just didn't have that language. There, there was nothing that he could use like that. He keeps the language completely and utterly redefines the whole practice. Um, in the end, Christians who talk like slavery is something that Christians ever put up with misinterpret the Bible. And there are a lot of Christians who do that. And they might want to say, well, you understand that Christianity's slavery or the slavery of the Greco-Roman times looked completely different than slavery in America have something of a point, although that point is vastly stretched out. Okay? I think an honest reading of what the New Testament says about the relationship between the poor and the, the rich, the relationship between those in power and authority and those who are under that authority so radically redefines those things that the way in which we talk and even using the word slave now is completely and utterly unhelpful. Because what Paul does is use the word and change everything that it means. So Christians who do it are wrong to do it. Even if they want to say slavery was wrong— but that doesn't mean that the New Testament does away with slavery. No, friends, the New Testament just does away with slavery. For all intents and purposes, slavery is no more in the New Testament. It's gone. Okay? I think that they're wrong when they do it, and certainly people who aren't Christian are wrong when they, they lambast the Bible for its position on slavery. For the Bible, slavery was always done for the good of the one enslaved. It was never done for the rights of those who were enslaving them. It was never done for their purposes. Now, if you want to look back at Israel and say, well, taking over Canaan, that, that's fine, you can do that. But that was a sign of God's mercy upon them, knowing that they were hardened heart and not full of faith to be able to drive out and to kill all of the Canaanites. Now, you might want to question, well, what about God and genocide? But we don't have time for that today. So we will come back to that some other time. But all right, questions about slavery and about how it's bad. Yeah, you, and it's, it's un, I mean, there's so, there's so little said about that that it, you can't build much off of it. So you also have... I know. 
I know, and what I'm saying is both, both pro-slavery and, and even just saying that they're servants, there's so little written about that there that it's hard to make anything out of it. And then on top of that, <clears throat> and patriarchs often did things that the Lord was going to correct in time. And so there is this problem of proscription versus description. God's not proscribing that Abraham go out and get them. Um, but nevertheless, there is a sense in which they're being with him um, they seem to be well treated, with the, the major exception of Hagar. Um, but then the Lord takes very, very good care of her in, in the desert as well. So there's this, this sort of difficulty with reading those things. Um, we really don't get anything in the way of a definite picture of the Lord until you get to the books of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the way in which the people of God, now having been slaves, which he made them on purpose to teach them a lesson about how they were to treat foreigners. And that lesson was, it really stunk being a slave. Now you should not have slaves, right? Now you should be able to treat the foreigners in your midst better, which is the exact same way we should think about it. Didn't it stink to be in sin and be enslaved to your sin? Why would you want to keep other people enslaved to your own will? So... Eliezer, right, yeah. Right, and it's not a small fortune at that time. God has blessed him immensely, so, yeah. Eliezer, no one was more sad at the birth of Ishmael than Eliezer, I'll tell you that much, so, yeah. We gotta go, we got, we got a lineup of people waiting to get in, so um, let's pray and uh, thank God for his time. Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it is um, enlightening and helpful, um, I pray that uh, we would take time to read it carefully and understand it well, um, especially when it, it says things that, that um, kind of go against the, the flow and the, the way in which we would, we would like to understand Scripture. Certainly, we want to be corrected by it, so our intuitions are not always correct, um, but we shouldn't just, shouldn't just read things and then just assume their meaning, but let, let us to think deeply about it, to ponder these things to try and understand the fullness of what is being said in every case um, so that we can do the work of the ministry rightly and correctly and not misrepresent you. What a grave, grave sin that is um, to speak ill of our God and to misrepresent his, your, your will and your intention. So um, I pray that we've done that well. I pray that it has been helpful um, by your word and uh, we just ask for your blessings on our time as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.